Well, good evening, Eastside Church family. Uh, this is Wednesday, April the 29th, and we have come to the last chapter of our study of knowing God, chapter 22, which is on the adequacy of God. And so tonight we'll be looking at this last chapter, probably just the first half of it. We probably won't be able to get through the whole thing. It was a little bit of a longer chapter, but uh, we'll look at at least the first half of it tonight and then probably finish up the book. Uh, in our next study. But uh, tonight we're looking at chapter 21, which is on the adequacy of God. And I think really what J.I. Packer is trying to do in this chapter is he is addressing uh, the doubts, uh, the the unbelief, the insecurities that hold us back from progress in the Christian life. And I think also hold us back from fully fulfilling our mission as disciples of Jesus Christ. And what he says in this chapter, in essence, is that what ultimately holds us back in the Christian life is a failure to trust, a failure to completely rely on the adequacy of our almighty God. And so he wants to remedy that for us as Christians. And so in a sense, he's kind of coming to the end, the climax of our study of knowing God, because everything that we've studied so far, all of the doctrines of God, all of his attributes, all of it is kind of coming to bear now as he summarizes our proper response to these things and how we need to trust and rely upon God in every area of our lives. And the way that he approaches this chapter is he draws us to the book of Romans because he says that that Romans kind of encapsulates all of the doctrines of Scripture, all the teachings about God and salvation in the Christian life. And so he says this in the chapter. He says, all roads in the Bible lead to Romans and all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And so he brings us to Romans, which he calls a a book of riches. And he says, if you're wise, then you need to be seeking for certain things in the Bible. And he says, really, all of those things that you need to be seeking for in the Bible, you can find in Romans. Uh, Things like doctrine, the truth about God, Uh, And he goes on and lists several of the doctrines that Romans touches on. Uh, The doctrine of God, man, sin, law, judgment, faith, works, grace, creation, redemption, justification, sanctification, the plan of salvation, election, reprobation, the person and work of Christ, the work of the Spirit, the Christian hope, the nature of the church, etc. And he goes on for a few more. It's just all of these doctrines that the scripture that you can find all throughout scriptures, they're right there in Romans. So he says we can find doctrine in Romans. Uh, We can find in Romans uh, the fact that it is a book of life. It is showing by exposition and by example what it means to serve God and also what it means to not serve him, to find him and to lose him in actual human experience. And so It's dealing with doctrine, but it's dealing it not with a theoretical level, but at a very practical, experiential level. 
he says the book of Romans is also the book of the church. It, it shows us um, who the church is, where the God-given faith and self-understanding of the believing fellowship are voiced. And so he talks about in Romans how uh, this letter shows us what the church is, uh, the true seed of Abraham. Uh, the family of God, the fellowship of believers. And he says the Bible is also, in Romans preeminently, is God's personal letter to each one of his spiritual children. And he says that really to appreciate um, the book of Romans, you almost have to uh, go deeper and higher in the Christian life. And he likens it in the chapter to someone who climbs Mount Everest. You know, it's a radically different perspective if you work hard and you climb your way to the peak of Mount Everest, or if, you know, a helicopter comes and brings you to the top of Mount Everest. It's a very different experience. He says Romans is kind of like that. It, you, you almost have to, to go deep in the Christian life and having experienced some of the trials and difficulties and setbacks of the Christian life gives you a greater appreciation for the magnificence of Romans. And he says then within Romans, Romans 8 is kind of like the, the pinnacle of the, the climax of what Romans is all about. It's Romans 8 is the heart of the whole book of Romans. And so he says, you also have to go deep in Romans in chapters 1 through 7 and kind of work your way there kind of like someone working their way up Mount Everest to the peak. You have to work your way through uh, Romans 1 through 7 of God's anger against sin, his condemnation against sinners, the way in which we are justified by the merits of Christ, his redeeming work on the cross through faith and faith alone, and how then we can, through the, the power of the Spirit, how we can have freedom and power over our bondage to sin. And so all of this leads to the climax of Romans, which provides us with great assurance in who our God is and what he has done for us in Christ. So he says Romans 8 is really the climax of the book of Romans. And so what does it contain? Well, Romans 8 contains the adequacy of the grace of God to deal with a whole series of predicaments. And so in verses 1 through 30, we have described in chapter 8 the guilt and the power of sin. Romans 8 deals with that and, and brings the adequacy of the grace of God to bear on the guilt and the power of sin. It brings the adequacy of God's grace to bear on the fact of death. It brings the grace of God, the adequacy of the grace of God to bear on the terror of confronting personal holiness, he says, on the weakness and despair in the face of suffering, on paralysis and prayer, on the feeling that life is meaningless. He says that Romans 8 brings to our attention the focus on the adequacy of the grace of God to meet all of these predicaments and challenges. And then the last part of Romans 8 is on the adequacy of the God of grace. And so in the first part, it's on the adequacy of the grace that God gives. In verses 31 to 39, it's the focus is more on God himself, the God of grace. It, it transitions from the gift to the giver. 
and of what our proper response as Christians should be to this grace of God that was revealed in verses 1 through 30. And so it is the adequacy of the grace of God as well as the adequacy of the God of grace. And really what Paul wants us to do in Romans 8 is he wants us to take the truths that he has written about and he wants us to apply them to our lives in a very real and practical way. And so he asked the question in verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where real life kicks in. All of these doctrines, all these truths, all these difficulties that we can experience in life that he describes in verses 1 through 30, what should we say in response to all of these things? And he says there are a couple of things that should define true Christians in every age. One of those is a commitment to all-around righteousness, that, that we are to be servants slaves of righteousness. Having been set free from the dominion of sin, we now become slaves of righteousness. So a commitment to all around righteousness, serious holiness. But he says another thing that characterizes Christians in every age is we are exposed to all around pressures. This is the lot of Christian experience that that we face material hardship as well as persecution and human hostility. We face this. It's the common lot of all Christians. And so what does Paul want us want to happen? What does Paul want us to receive? Really what Paul wants us to have and to, to come away from his writings is he wants us to, to put it in a particular phrase. He wants us to possess our possessions. And what does G.I. Packer mean by that? He means that to know what is ours in Christ, and to live in light of it. Paul wants us to know the peace, the hope, the joy in God's love, which are the Christian's birthright. He says this in the chapter. He says, think of what you know of God through the gospel, says Paul, and apply it. Think against your feelings. Argue yourself out of the gloom they have spread. Unmask the unbelief they have nourished. Take yourself in hand. Talk to yourself. Make yourself look up from your problems to the God of the gospel. Let evangelical thinking correct emotional thinking. In other words, Paul wants us to think gospel thoughts gospel truths, revealed truths that God has given us, and let those shape our thinking, not our emotional responses to the difficulties and the frustrations, the fears of life. He wants us to take gospel thoughts and let those shape our minds. So what then shall we say in response to these things? Paul provides us with four main thoughts, and we'll look at the first two of those tonight and then the the last two in our next lesson. The first one is, if God is for us. So this is the first response. What shall we say in response to these things? The first of those is, God is for us. God is for us. So, If God is for us, 
who is against us, he says in verse 31. And what Paul wants us to know from this point, from this line of thinking, is that there is no opposition, none, that can finally crush us. There is no opposition that can finally crush us as God's children, as Christians. So he wants us to know the adequacy of God as our sovereign protector. And in this portion of the chapter, he says, think about who this God is. This is the Lord, Yahweh, God Jehovah. This is the God who revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. And he said, the Lord, the Lord, who is gracious and compassionate, abounding in love and mercy, forgiving iniquity and sins and transgressions, and being slow to anger, being patient. This is that God. This is the God who called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God who called Moses and delivered Israel out of Egypt. This is the God who brought Israel into the uh, promised land and gave them victory over the Canaanites. This is the God who brought them out of Babylon and brought them home. This is the God who brought a Messiah into the nation of Israel. This is that God, the creator God, the faithful God, the strong and mighty God. He is the sovereign one. He says at this point in the chapter, he says, this is the God who showed his sovereignty by bringing Abraham out of Ur, Israel out of captivity in Egypt, and later in Babylon, and Jesus out of the grave, and who shows the same sovereignty still every time he raises a sinner to spiritual life out of spiritual death. And he wants us to know also the decisiveness of his covenant commitment to us. He says, this covenant relationship is the basis of all biblical religion. When worshipers say, my God, and God says, my people, covenant language is being talked about. So he says this, this language, if God the Lord Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, if God is for us, and he says that language for us is covenant language. It is the language of God's binding commitment to the people that he has made promises and oaths to. If God is for us. Why is Paul saying this? What is his purpose in asking this question, if God is for us, who is against us? Really, his purpose is to counter fear. He is countering fear, the timid Christian's fear of the forces which he feels are massed against him. Think about life. Think about all the challenges that we face, whether it be just the challenges that anybody faces in a fallen world, or even specifically the challenges that Christians face because they're being uh, opposed, persecuted in the world. Uh, there are fears that we can that can come into our hearts and our minds. And what Paul is reminding us of here is 
there's no one against this. There is no opposition that can ultimately defeat God's children. Paul knows that sooner or later, this fear, this doubt becomes a problem for every Christian. And he wants us to know that God is for us, that he is decisively committed to his children in covenant. In essence, Paul says, think, think, God is for you. You see what that means? Now reckon up who is against you and ask yourself how the two sides compare. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is sovereignly, faithfully in covenant commitment for us, there's really, there is no enemy that can ultimately prevail against God's children. No enemy, no force, no circumstance, nothing in all of creation that can prevail. He says, you will find in thus knowing God as your sovereign protector, irrevocably committed to you in the covenant of grace, both freedom from fear and new strength for the fight. This thought, if God is for us, who can be against us? He says is meant to drive out fear and uncertainty and doubt from our thinking as children of the Most High God. So, if God is for us. The second main thing that he wants us to think about, what shall we say in response to these things, is that there is no good thing withheld from God's children. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Here he says, the main thought that Paul wants us to know is that no good thing, nothing that is good for us will finally be withheld from us. And he wants us to understand the adequacy of God as our sovereign benefactor. And so in the first point, if God is for us, who will be against us? He wanted us to understand the adequacy of God as our sovereign protector and the decisive commitment of his covenant to us. Here he wants us to understand the adequacy of God as our sovereign benefactor, the gift giver. And he wants us to understand the decisiveness of his redeeming work for us. He says, if he has not spared his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The decisiveness of his redeeming work for us. He wants us to understand the costliness of our redemption. So here is what supports Paul's assertion that God is going to give us all good things. There is no good thing that will be withheld from us as God's children. What is his proof for that? What is his basis of argument for that? The first is the costliness of our redemption. The costliness of our redemption. 
here's Paul's line of thought. If God gave us Christ, why wouldn't he give us all things? Jesus is his own son, his only begotten son. The greatest, most infinite gift that God could have possibly given. And so if God has already given us Christ to give us the rest of everything else in the universe that is good, is nothing for God, the generous, infinitely loving gift giver. He says in saving us, God went to the limit. What more could he have given for us? What more had he to give than his son? So if God has already commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, it is believable, to say the least, that he will go on to give us all things besides. And he reminds us that at the point that God gave us Christ, the greatest gift that he could give, we were sinners. So it's not like there is anything in us that could put in jeopardy God not giving us all things because he gave us the greatest gift when we were the most unworthy, when we were still sinners. Now that we are God's children, how will he not also give us all things? So it's an amazing thought, the costliness of our redemption. He didn't spare his own son. And so why wouldn't he give us all things? He also undergirds his argument with the effectiveness of our redemption. So God is going to give us all good things. Why? Because he's already given us the most costly thing that he could have given us in Christ. And he's also going to give us all things because of the effectiveness of our redemption. What does he mean here? He takes it from the phrase, God gave him up for us all, for us, in our place, for our benefit. And he says, the effectiveness of our redemption is this, that God's plan of redemption is one. It is one. It is not something that you can break down into parts and separate. It is one. From eternity past and God's gracious, all-wise plan to save sinners, God's choice, his loving, elective, sovereign choice to save sinners and upon whom he would lavishly bestow that grace, his predetermination to save them and conform them to the image of his son, his election of Christ to be their redeemer and to place those people in Christ, in the beloved, in eternity past. So that then when Christ came to the cross of Calvary, it was not a, an unpurposeful redemption. It was a purposeful redemption in the same harmonious package of redemption going all the way back to eternity past and God's intent to save, Christ's redemption was for those people that God determined to save and put in Christ. 
So there is no doubt to the effectiveness of Christ's redemption. Those for whom he gave his life, he will draw. He says, I came to save sinners. And in John chapter 6, he says, all of those that the Father has given to me, they will come to me. In John 10, he says, I lay down my life for my sheep. And he says, I call my sheep, I call them by name, and they come and they follow me. And so Jesus' redemption was not open-ended. What if? I wonder who will respond. No, Jesus' redemption was planned and was intended to be effectual, to accomplish what God had set out for it to accomplish in eternity past. Therefore, Christ's redemption of us cannot fail because it began in eternity past. It was accomplished by him on the cross and it guarantees our future glorification. So the effectiveness of our redemption. He says, this fact is itself the guarantee that all things will be given us because they all come to us as the direct fruit of Christ's death. So how can we know that God will give us all things in Christ? Because the plan of God's redemption for us is one, unified in Christ. And every good thing that God has in store for us comes to us through Christ and through his redemption on the cross. The unity of God's saving purpose makes such further giving, that is to give us all things, necessary and therefore certain. He goes on to say, the New Testament view is that the death of Christ has actually saved us all. Not potentially, not what if, but he has actually saved us all. All, that is to say, all whom God foreknew and has called and justified they will all in due course be glorified. For our faith, he says, which from the human point of view is the means of salvation, is from God's point of view part of salvation and is as directly and completely God's gift to us as is the pardon and peace of which faith lays hold. What is he saying there? From our human point of view, we see faith as the door to salvation, as the entrance to salvation. From God's point of view, faith is a part of salvation, the whole package that he has accomplished for us and is granting to us. So psychologically, faith is our own act. But the theologically, uh, the theological truth about it is that it is God's work in us. Our faith And our new relationship with God as believers and all the divine gifts that are enjoyed within this relationship were all alike secured for us by Jesus' death on the cross. For the cross was not an isolated event. It was rather the focal point in God's eternal plan to save his elect. And it ensured and guaranteed first the calling the bringing to faith through the gospel and the mind and the Holy Spirit in the heart, and then the justification and finally the glorification of all for whom specifically and personally Christ 
died. In other words, because of Christ's effectual redemption, our salvation cannot fail. And also the gifts that God has in store for us cannot fail. He will graciously, along with Christ, give us all things. The saving purpose of God from eternal election to final glory is one. And it is vital for both our understanding and our assurance that we should not lose sight of the links that bind together its various stages and parts. It is one salvation. So he says, how is it that God will graciously give us all things? He's already given us Christ, the costliest of gifts, the costliness of our redemption, the effectiveness of our redemption. Christ's death accomplished everything that God had in store for us. And finally, Paul's argument as to why God will graciously give us all things is the consequences of our, of our redemption. That is, the, the natural outflow, the results of our redemption. He will give us all things. And at this point in the chapter, J.I. Packer talks about what, what it is that comes to us as believers. And at this point, he reminds us of some of the things that, that come to us in this world, specifically as believers who are walking in faith in the footsteps of Christ. There are certain difficulties that we may need to endure. Uh, Jesus says that those who are my disciples will take up their cross daily and follow me. Jesus said that those who are my disciples, they will put their hand to the plow and they will not look back. They'll have to forsake some things as they put their hand to the plow and follow in my path. And But what Paul wants us to know here is that in committing our lives to Christ in discipleship, in faith, in service, being now servants of righteousness. Yes, there are sacrifices in the sense that we have to forsake certain things in this world to lay hold of the heavenly treasure that Christ has for us. But what Paul wants us to know is that ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, we're not surrendering anything. We're not losing anything. In forsaking the world for Christ, the Christian is in reality surrendering nothing because in the end, God will graciously give us all things. We may then, without fear of poverty, without fear of lack, we can commit ourselves wholly to God and God alone knowing that he is our sovereign benefactor who will graciously give us all things. And at this point in the chapter, he, he talked about the Israelites and the giving of the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. And the real issue in that first commandment is a commitment of loyalty to God and God alone and also a commitment of trust to God and God alone. 
the Israelites coming out of that ancient Near Eastern context would have been tempted to put their trust for certain things that they needed in different gods. And so in the ancient world, they had a God for rain. They had a God for good crops. They had a God for you know, blessing your family with healthy children. So the, the people of the ancient world, they would trust in different gods and they would trust in them for different things. And they would call on them for help in those certain areas of life. Really what God is calling on the Israelites to do at Mount Sinai when he says you'll have no other gods is you must trust me for all of those things. Everything that you need in life will be provided by me and me alone. So he's calling on them not only for loyalty, but for exclusive, absolute trust and dependence on God and God alone and on none others. And he says this is important for us to remember because we as Christians need to be given to exclusive trust in God. And when we, uh, when we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we can give ourselves completely to him, completely in fullness, our whole body, soul, and mind. We can, as Paul says in Romans 12, give our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Why? Because we can depend on him. We can trust him with everything because he will provide what we need. We can trust him. He will graciously give us all things. And he says, this is what separates us from New Testament Christians. The Christians that are described for us in the book of Acts and in the epistles in the New Testament, they gave themselves wholly to God and they committed themselves to the church and to the Great Commission. And we don't see them holding back. Paul says, why is that? It's because they trusted the adequacy of God to fully be what they needed. He says, we are so unlike the Christians of New Testament times. Our approach to life is conventional and static. Theirs was not. The thought of safety first was not a drag on their enterprise as it is on ours. By being exuberant, unconventional, and uninhibited in living by the gospel, they turned their world upside down. But you could not accuse us 20th century Christians of doing anything like that. Why are we so different, he says. Why, compared with them, do we appear as no more than halfway Christians? Whence comes the nervous, dithery, take-no-risks mood? that mars so much of our discipleship why are we not free enough from fear and anxiety to allow ourselves to go full stretch in following christ he says one reason it seems is that in our heart of hearts we are afraid of the consequences of going the whole way into the christian life why because we are lacking in trust he says it's fundamentally unbelief that we don't fully commit ourselves to Christ, to God the Father, because we don't fully rely, we don't fully believe in his adequacy to provide and to give everything that we need. He says it is these half-conscious fears 
this dread of insecurity, rather than any deliberate refusal to face the cost of following Christ, which make us hold back. We feel that the risks of out and out, that is full out discipleship, are too great for us to take. In other words, we are not persuaded of the adequacy of God to provide for all the needs of those who launch out wholeheartedly on the deep sea of unconventional living in obedience to the call of Christ. Therefore, we feel obliged to break the first commandment just a little, no other gods before God, by withdrawing a certain amount of our time and energy from serving God in order to serve mammon. Why? Because we think that we need mammon, money, material possessions, to really provide what we need instead of trusting God to provide what we need. He says, this at bottom seems to be what is wrong with us. We're afraid to go all the way in accepting the authority of God because of our secret uncertainty as to his adequacy to look after us if we do. Do we ha Have we the faith in the adequacy of God to go all in, in discipleship and mission? He says, Paul's all things, the things that God will give us, it's not a plethora of material possessions. So it's not the health and wealth gospel. If you follow God, he's going to give you a Ferrari and a new house and all this. It's not a plethora of material possessions. And the passions for possessions has to be cast out of us in order to let the all things in. For this phrase, he will graciously give us all things, has to do with knowing God and enjoying God and not with anything else. The meaning of he will give us all things can be put thus. One day we shall see that nothing, literally nothing, which could have increased our eternal happiness has been denied us. And that nothing, literally nothing, that could have reduced that happiness has been left with us. What higher assurance do we want than that? In other words, everything that is good, the very best that we need and can enjoy, God will give us. And anything that will ultimately take away from our happiness, God will remove it. And the best thing that can bring us joy and fulfillment and pleasure, satisfaction, is God himself enjoying God and enjoying him forever. And so Paul wants us in Romans 8, and Jaya Packer, by focusing our attention on Romans 8, wants us to think about the full adequacy of God. Why? So that we can go all in on God and enjoy him and trust him with our lives. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? There's no opposition that can come against us. He says, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not along with him also graciously give us all things? 
He wants us to trust the adequacy of God as our sovereign protector, keeping us safe from all opposition. He also wants us to trust in the adequacy of God as our sovereign benefactor, that anything good that we need, God will give. And so may our hearts be completely devoted and resting, standing on him and him alone. I pray that this would be an encouragement to you. And next week as well, when we finish up this chapter, let's bow in prayer together. Our Father God, we thank you that you are the one who provides all that we need. You are the one who gives all good gifts. Every good gift comes down from you, from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness or shadow of turning. You are the faithful God. You are our faithful provider. God, help us to depend upon you, to trust you, to not look to the other gods, small g gods of this world, whether it be fame, strength, popularity, wealth, whatever it is that we think can bring us security or hope or happiness, Father, may we place that all in you and renounce our dependence upon other things outside of you. Father, may we trust you in times of difficulty and trial and even persecution and opposition that you will ultimately be our protector. God, may we see your full and complete adequacy for all of life. God bless your children. Bless our church family and watch over them. And we pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen. May you have a blessed week.